Sefer Bereshit, Parshat Vayechi, Inhabiting the World to Come. Parshat Vayechi comprises the final chapters of Genesis. Though this parsha is famous for depicting the final days of Jacob, it begins with the words, Jacob lived. Vayechi Yaakov. He lives out the last years of his life in Egypt. As his death draws near, Jacob extracts an oath from his son Joseph that he will take him out of Egypt and bury him in the land of Israel. Then follows a series of blessings for Joseph's two sons alongside Jacob's own sons, each assigned an identity as a tribe of Israel. Jacob's death is different from those who passed before him. The Talmud notes that until Jacob, nobody became sick before they died. Instead, they passed away without warning. But Jacob, the Talmud tells us, prayed for mercy which came in the form of an illness. Illness may seem like an unlikely blessing, but Jacob's illness gave him warning that he was to die. It allowed him to prepare as evident in his prodigious blessings for his heirs, at least the male ones. On the fate of Dina, the text is painfully silent. After making his blessings, Jacob says his final goodbye. His wording is distinct. I am about to be gathered to my people, he says. He repeats the instructions that he should be buried in place, we now know as Hebron, Hebron. Chapter 49 ends with this verse. When Jacob finished his instructions to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, and breathing his last, he was gathered to his people. From this single verse, we can reveal a lot about Olam Haba, the world to come, and how we might understand heaven as not just a theological idea, but an ethical one. You may have noticed that the word death does not appear in the descriptions of Jacob's passing. The commentator Rashi notes this also. In commentary on this verse, he points out that we do not see the word death. Instead, we get viva, less clear and more poetic word, which means to expire and has a cognate in Arabic that means to be empty. JPS translates it as breathing his last. Another way of saying this may be, Jacob drew his last breath. What can we understand from the absence of the word death? Rashi links this back to a different passage of Talmud, in which our sages say, Yaakov avinu lo mate. Yaakov avinu lo mate. Jacob, our father, did not die. The Rambam continues analyzing this to mean that the souls of the righteous are bound in the bind of life with the eternal. What's clear is that death is not the end for Jacob. We are dealing with the afterlife. There's a common liberal Jewish misconception that Judaism does not embrace any kind of afterlife at all. It may be that this comes from the understandable desire to distance oneself from Christianity. As Christianity is so deeply focused on salvation through Jesus and by extension, the afterlife. As Jews, we might find ourselves wanting to put distance between us and an oversimplified theology that says believers go to heaven, atheists go to hell, and the only path to salvation is through a personal savior. That doesn't relate to us. We might find ourselves saying, we don't have an afterlife. While anyone is welcome to believe whatever they want, the truth is that our foundational Jewish texts most certainly do embrace the concept of an afterlife, referred to as olam haba, the world to come. Some of our most explicit mentions come from the earliest layer of Talmud, the Mishnah. All of the Jewish people have a share in the world to come, it says in the Mishnah. One hour of pleasure 
in the world to come is better than all the time in this world. Whether or not the idea of a world to come squares away with your belief system, it is worthwhile to ask ourselves how the concept of the world to come can be morally useful and generative for us as we invest in this world. It would take far too long to get into all the details of all the Jewish perspectives on what the next life might look like and feel like. A few examples include Sheol, a kind of pit, Gehenna, something closer to purgatory, and even reincarnation in the form of Gilgul HaNefesh, the cycling of souls. What we're interested in today is how the afterlife as a concept can be useful to us Jews today. The first way is the most obvious, also probably the least popular in our day and age. The concept of reward, schar, and punishment, onesh, schar onesh, in the afterlife as a system of divine justice. This vision of the afterlife offers comfort in a world with so much injustice because it promises that ultimately justice is corrected. It would feel wrong and unfair if Hitler, for example, had the same fate after death as a child he murdered. It's a powerful and even soothing idea that there is divine punishment and divine reward. In this case, some reification for Hitler's evil and salvation for the child he murdered. The second way in which the afterlife as a concept might be generative for us is more spiritual in nature. It has to do with the fortifying power of being reunited with those we have lost. Let's return to our Parsha. After Yaakov breathes his last breath, we are told that he was gathered to his people. His expression to be gathered to his people is used elsewhere in Torah. The death of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac all use this turn of phrase. It suggests that when we die, our souls join those of our ancestors. This is confirmed by Rashi's explanation of the verb to gather in this section, which he says indicates that souls are taken to a place in heaven and laid by. What a beautiful vision of the afterlife this is. Jacob's soul is reunited with his people. You can imagine his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, holding open their arms for him once again, gathering him to them. This is not a system of reward and punishment, but something more communal and relational. As Jews, we exist in community with our ancestors. Four times a year during Passover, Shavuot, Shemini Atzeret, and Yom Kippur, we recite the memorial prayer of Yisker, which offers us the opportunity to call our departed loved ones into the space. It is, as anyone who participates can attest, a deeply moving experience. Similarly, each year at Sukkot, we have the practice of inviting Ushbizin, guests, into the sukkah. According to the Zohar, these guests include the souls of the righteous, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, Moshe, Aaron, and David. As we gather, there is that word again, our ancestors into this world during Yisker, and as Ushbizin, so too do our ancestors gather to us in the next world. The notion of an afterlife in community with our ancestors is useful to us, regardless of what we believe, because of how our own activism and change work may be strengthened when we feel ourselves walking alongside our ancestors. A feminist might be strengthened by calling upon her grandmothers. Someone fighting for a fair minimum wage might be strengthened by the presence of their labor organizing ancestors. What's more, we may find we have ancestors connected to us by movements rather than directly by blood. Those of us who fight for change might welcome our ancestors in the struggle. 
Their presence makes us stronger. We continue the work they left off. Yet also we allow ourselves rest, knowing that one day our future ancestors will continue where we leave off. As Pirkei Avot reminds us in the words of Rabbi Tarfo, it is not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. You don't need to actively and firmly believe in an act afterlife to find the concept of the afterlife useful. It's true that if you believe in a concept of afterlife that offers reward and punishment, as I mentioned earlier, you might find yourself more able to withstand the pain of injustice. You also may feel a moral reinforcement to do what's right since you believe you'll be accountable in the next world. But whether or not you believe that your soul will actually join that of your ancestors when you pass, you may find yourself strengthened by the invitation to exist in community with your ancestors, both biological and spiritual. This brings us to the third way in which discussions of an afterlife can be generative for us. They give us perspective on what matters. Thinking about an afterlife offers us an opportunity to zoom out and focus on what matters on the eternal scale. If you're a social justice change maker, it's easy to get completely absorbed into the battle of your day, taking care of the immediate needs of the unhoused on your block, knocking on doors to spread the word about a promising candidate for local government, organizing phone banking to put pressure on lawmakers to do the right thing. These battles matter, but with the concept of olam haba, we offer ourselves the chance to think about the larger spiritual dimensions of our work. We can stay focused on the spiritual even as we pursue the granular. Because the truth is we don't just want to win our specific campaign. Yes, the campaigns of our day are important, but it also matters how we engage with others and each other over the course of our struggle. We want to do the right thing in a way that is righteous, fair, mutually respectful, patient, kind. What kind of person are we becoming in the eyes of heaven? The means by which we achieve our goal matters just as much as the end goal itself. A concept of olam haba helps us remember this. The fourth way that the concept of the world to come can be useful to us is that it helps us imagine a better world here on earth. Just as we previously dispelled the myth that Judaism doesn't concern itself with the afterlife, on a similar plane, there's a common misconception that Judaism is this worldly meaning concerned only with the physical world. While it's true that Judaism fosters a deep investment in this world, so much of our halacha is about how we live in this world and how we care for this world and how we repair it. And yet it's not entirely accurate to say that Judaism is 100% this worldly. We are otherworldly as well. As we've been seeing today, we have a profound belief in the world to come. One of the most beautiful aspects of the Jewish concept of Olam Haba is that rather than trying to escape this world into the world to come, we are trying to take Olam Haba and bring, and bring it, gather it, you could say, down to this world. Believing in a world to come that is perfected in its peace and justice gives us a utopia to believe in and work toward. To discuss this idea at length, we'd have to get into the concept of the Messianic era, itself a completely distinct concept, as even in the Messianic era, there will be a world to come. But the overall idea I want to impart is that by holding on to the idea of Olam Haba, we are holding on to our belief that the world can be healed, that it is not hopelessly broken. By holding on to Olam Haba, we are reinforcing our belief in progress. 
We can see that progress is both empirically true. More people have more rights today than in the past, while also being spiritually meaningful in the concept of Olam Haba. Our parsha began with the words, Jacob lived. At its core, a concept of Olam Haba is about living what we do on this world to bring it closer to the next. Shabbat Shalom.